Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I won't at all be offended that uh, Jackie listed three courses, one of which I'm doing, and then said some of these have been particularly helpful, and then listed the other two, and not the one that I'm doing. I, uh, I'm, uh, I quit. I'm out of here. <laughs> no, uh, no. Uh, I forgive you, Jackie. Um, it is great to be with you this morning. It really is. Uh, I mean, it's always great to be here at the South Service anyway, uh, but I think it's particularly great to be with you this morning. Um, can't really think of anywhere else I would rather be this morning, apart from maybe sitting down there with someone else up here. But um, it's really great to be with you on what has, as we've already heard, been quite an emotional weekend for many of us here and at the culmination of an emotional couple of weeks. Um, as we've already heard, many of us yesterday gathered together to remember the life of our dear friend, John Payne, uh, to celebrate his life, uh, to lay him to rest. And it was an emotional, uh, powerful, uh, sad day But I think that you will agree, if you were there, particularly in the evening, that in amongst the sadness, there were strange moments of hope and joy and even laughter (laughs) amidst the tears as we just remembered what an incredible person he was and the difference he's made to our lives and also what a heart he had for making this world a better place. And there were moments, particularly last night, as we reflected on his life and his legacy and heard parts of his story that maybe not all of us knew and got the opportunity to worship and pray together that it was almost like there was a sense of hope uh, rising up in some of our hearts. I know people expressed that to me last night. Joe spoke on the theme of hope and it was so powerful. It did my soul good just to think about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And it's that theme of hope that I want to pick up a little bit this morning from a slightly different angle uh, to that which we looked at yesterday. I want to talk about hope. Because these have undoubtedly been a challenging few weeks for us. And even if you didn't know John personally, I know that you will have been impacted by it. I've spoken to many people who said, I didn't know him. But actually being part of a community that weeps has done something to me. I found myself weeping on behalf of those who weep. And of course, that's exactly how community is meant to work. Paul, writing to a church in Rome, talking about church, talking about the Christian faith, said that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And I feel like that verse, which I've known for years, has just come alive for me more in the last two months, than I, two weeks rather, than I have ever seen it before. And I think that this community will never be the same again because of the events of the last two weeks. That's not to say it will always feel like it has done these last two weeks, but I think that going through seasons where we not only rejoice together but mourn together changes us in a powerful and profound way. I think there is a depth of community now that there wasn't a month ago, wasn't six months ago. Going through things like this changes us. But of course, I know that John's passing has not been the only challenge that people have faced. And I know because I speak to you and I share life with you that there are people in this room who over the last months have been going through all sorts of things. Work troubles, financial troubles, relationship breakdown, long-term health problems, bereavements of your own. 
And my hope and prayer for this community is that increasingly we will be the kind of place where we can all come as we are, bringing with us our brokenness, our pain and our tears, and we can find healing and hope here. And so this morning, I hope that what I'm going to say is going to be helpful to you wherever you are at. I want to look at a psalm, and it's Psalm 126. It's a psalm that has deeply comforted and helped me in the last few weeks particularly. I'd love to read it to you and just offer a few thoughts. Psalm 126, a song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. A little bit of context to help us understand this psalm. Actually, there's lots we don't know about this psalm. We don't know who wrote it. We don't even know why it was written particularly. Verses 1 to 3 suggest that the writer is looking back to a time in Israel's history that was a joyous, wonderful time, a time of blessing. Probably they're talking about a period known as the return from exile. If you know anything of the Old Testament story, there were various points where Israel was uprooted from their land. One particular time, one particular exile, where they were conquered, they were removed from their land, the people taken into captivity, Jerusalem destroyed. It seemed like both them and their God had been defeated. They lost their wealth their sense of national identity. But then God intervened and brought the people back from exile, back to their land, restoring their fortunes, restoring something of their identity, and the people were able to rebuild the city again. And it seems like the psalmist is looking back to that day of restoration and joy and saying, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. It was an incredible season of hope and restoration for the people. In fact, the psalmist writes that other nations who didn't know God would look at what God was doing to his people and they would marvel. He says, then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. So that's verses one to three. But it seems like those days are in the past. We don't know what has happened. We don't know the exact context of this psalm, but it seems that something has gone wrong. And the writer says, restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. They are in a difficult, painful period looking back at better days. Now, the Negev is uh, an area in South Judea. It was a large wilderness area. Actually, the word itself, it means dry. It means parched. And this seems to be, for the psalmist, a metaphor of how he and how the people he is part of are feeling. It feels like a wilderness period. We look back to these great days when God led us, God blessed us. But now, right now, to be honest, it feels less like that and more like a wilderness And the question really is, what should you do in these times? How should you live as a community in these times? Verse 5 says this, Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. How do we live as individuals and in a community when it feels less like the days of blessing, more like a day of the wilderness? What do we do with our tears? Well, I think the answer is this. We sow our tears. That's what the psalmist says. We sow our tears. 
Now, actually, it's not clear whether the psalm is saying, uh, talking about people going out to sow literal seed with tears in their eyes, or maybe actually poetically, it's talking about going out and, and literally sowing with your tears, sowing your tears. I find that quite a helpful and evocative image. We sow our tears. Either way, whichever way you interpret it, the point is clear. There are things that we can do actively with our tears in periods of distress that will ultimately bring about harvest. We can sow our tears. Sow is not a, a, a sort of random word. You don't sow just by letting seed fall wherever it happens to go. To sow is to be active. It is to take something and plant it in the sure and certain hope that it is going to develop into a harvest. And the psalmist says we can do that with our tears. We can sow our tears. Now this psalm was written to a largely agrarian society where people relied on the sowing and reaping and harvest for, uh, well, for their own food, but also for financial income. And so the idea of sowing, it's not just a hobby. You know, gardening was not a hobby like it might be for us jaded Londoners who consider it a major horticultural achievement if we keep a window box alive for two weeks. You know, it's sowing, maybe that's just me, I'm useless at gardening. Um, but sowing was not a hobby. Sowing and reaping were not just a hobby. They were a way of life. Your whole well being was tied up in the idea of sowing and reaping a harvest. So here, when it talks about sowing our tears, this is the language of investment, of taking precious things, putting them, into, uh, putting them to work, investing them so that you will yield uh, both, a, both a harvest that will benefit and strengthen you, but also provide the ability for communities to flourish. Sowing is investment. And the psalmist talks about us sowing our tears deliberately investing them. There is a way of investing our tears in periods of difficulty that results in a future harvest. There is a way of sowing our tears that is not just meaninglessly letting them fall to the ground. There is a way of investing them such that they will result in growth and fruit. Now this idea feels alien to many, many Christians. It can feel very difficult for us to get our heads around. I know there are plenty of preachers and writers and people I know who would say, no, actually the Christian life, it's all meant to be about happiness, all about joy. I know many people, I've read many books where people seem to suggest that actually tears represent a lack of trust in God. Respectfully, I disagree. Unrespectfully, I disagree. I totally disagree with that view. I think it is unhealthy. I think it is unrealistic. I don't think it is biblical. I mean, take the book of Psalms. We have 150 songs that were recorded, the songbook of the Old Testament. It's full of different types of psalms, some that are songs of celebration, some that celebrate creation, some that are psalms of praise. You know what the most common type of psalm is? Psalms of lament, psalms of weeping. Why did God, out of 150 psalms, keep the downbeat ones in? I think it's because he realizes that weeping is important and he wants to give us a model and a pattern for how to do it well. Think about the life of Jesus. He wept at the grave of his friend Lazarus. He wept in the garden of Gethsemane. He was described as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. If Christians are meant to be people who look like Christ, then to say, well, no, weeping is ungodly, unchristian, that just makes no sense at all. Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. The book of Acts, Acts chapter 7 and 8, there's an incredible moment for the community where they undergo the first martyrdom, a horrible moment where they lose their dear friend Stephen. And Acts 8 2 says this, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. <laughs> 
Mourning is explicitly described as the action of godly people. Why? I think because it reflects something of how God himself feels. Someone shared Psalm 116 with me this week in this particular line. And it says this, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. The life of his people matters deeply to God and he grieves when we grieve. In fact, I've just been reading that psalm loads the last two weeks and one verse just blew my mind. I'd never seen it before. I don't know how many times I've read this psalm. Blew me away. Verse 10, it says, I trusted in the Lord when I said I am greatly afflicted. Just think about that for a moment. I trusted in the Lord when I said, I am greatly afflicted. At the moment when many people would look at the psalmist in his deepest anguish and said, no, if you really trusted God, you wouldn't be weeping. No, it says that an act of trust was declaring, I'm greatly afflicted. There is a way of weeping that is actually an incredible act of worship, an incredible act of trust in God. God doesn't call us to deny our tears, ignore our tears, or just let them fall to the ground meaninglessly. He invites us to sow our tears in a way that will result in harvest. So what does it look like to sow our tears? Well, first of all, I think it involves prayer. Being honest with God through prayer is one of the most important things we can do. Whatever our circumstances, expressing to him how we are feeling, what our needs and our lacks are, is deeply important. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I find that at my most difficult times, I don't feel I have the language to pray. I don't know how to pray, to sow my tears through prayers. One of the things that's been most helpful to me is just reading prayers that others have written with just more poetic insight than I could ever find. Just finding prayers that express my heart in ways I could never express and using them. You might want to do that with other prayers, with the Psalms. Use this as a book where you can express the inexpressible through the words that God has inspired. Or it may be that at times you'll find that you have no words at all. Well, there's an answer to that as well. In Romans 8, Paul says, The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. You know, sometimes praying, Lord, I don't know how to pray. I pray you would help me to pray. is like the most profound prayer you can pray. I don't know how to pray. God, help me to pray. And I know that at times where I have found least able to sum up my heart before God in prayer, just praying that prayer has been so powerful. And the Spirit gives us words to express the inexpressible. We begin sowing our tears through prayer. Secondly, we sow our tears through worship. And one of the things that I have been so encouraged by in this community has just been the sense of worship, the abundance of worship I've seen. Like being among you and worshiping has been wonderful. But I've just heard so many people say, you know, I've been struggling at particular times with thoughts or feelings and just being able to sing this song or hear this song or think on these lyrics have expressed my pain and given me hope. Worship is incredible. I'm pretty sure there have been more worship lyrics text between members of this community in the last two weeks than ever in the history of mankind. You know, worship is powerful. It does something to us. Where we not only express how we are feeling to God, but we allow his perspective to shape ours. And when we sing and reflect on words inspired by scripture, it causes us to have a bigger view of God. 
And as we immerse ourselves in worship, reminding ourselves of who he is, in time, our hearts come to a place where we think, he is so good, he is so strong, he is so faithful, how could I not trust him? We sow our tears through prayer. We sow our tears through worship. We sow our tears through community. Farming is not something you do by yourself. If you do, you don't get a lot of a harvest. It's a team thing. Families farm together. They prepare the soil. They prepare the seed. They lay it out. They bury it. They care for it. They water it. They bring in the harvest together. If that is true of literal farming, it's true also of sowing our tears. It's something best done together. Weep together. Pray together. Worship together. What's that one another? That's not in the Bible, but it's good advice. What's that one another? Encourage one another. That one is in the Bible. It's a communal thing. Hug one another. Community is so powerful. We sow tears, not alone, but together. And it makes a difference, not just for us as individuals, but for a community. And learning to sow our tears involves patient trust again and again and again, not just for the short term, but over the long haul. I said earlier, we don't really know what exactly inspired the writing of this psalm, but what we do know is how the people used it. At the beginning, it said that this was a song of ascent, which sounds a little bit weird. We don't know what songs of ascent are. But actually, in the Bible, in the Psalms, there were these various different Psalms that had that title, a song of ascent. And these were like the little bit of the hymn book that was used at particular times in Israel's history. And the particular time was this. When the people went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, which was the great celebration of the way God had brought them freedom in the past, they would literally ascend the mountain in Jerusalem towards the temple going to worship. Every year, thousands and thousands and thousands of them would ascend. And as they ascended, they would sing the songs of ascent, this being one of them. So imagine the scene. Every year, people coming back again and again, ascending the mountain, step after step, singing these songs over. Restore our, for- I'm not going to sing it. Restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap joy. And every year, they would sing the same songs over and over as they ascended to worship God. There's a repetitious element to this again and again and again and again. And I can imagine that was a bittersweet experience. Because on the one hand, doing something powerful like that as a community again and again and again does something to you. But also there must have been a constant reminder that this world is not yet how it was meant to be. You see, at least in the time of Jesus, in the many years before that, Israel and Jerusalem was under Roman rule. And so as the people were traipsing up the mountain singing this song, they still had hopes in their heart because the world was not as it was meant to be. Some of the promises of God still seemed like they were unfulfilled. And so as they're singing this psalm, it both raises the questions of when is God going to answer these prayers and also creates a sense of longing. And the two go together. I find there are many moments in my life where those two come together, where I find myself just feeling a deep sense of loss or questioning. When are these prayers going to be answered? When are hopes going to be fulfilled? And yet I also have to say, like those people, I am going to walk up the mountain again and I'm going to sow my seed of tears into the soil of God's hope. There are moments, anniversaries, events, 
places that evoke memories of loss and pain and questions. And in those moments, one of the ways we can sow our tears is again through patient trust in God, coming again, saying, I am going to sow my tears again, even though it feels like this season is lasting longer than I like. I am going to patiently trust in him. In his brilliant book, God on Mute, um, which I've recommended to probably everyone, uh, and if I haven't, then now I recommend it to everyone. It's a brilliant book on, on prayer and the challenge of how to pray when it feels like prayer is unanswered, when God is not listening. Uh, it's a brilliant book. Do check it out. But Pete Gregg includes this here inscription, which was uh, found in a basement in Cologne in 1945. It was written by a Jewish believer who was hiding from the Gestapo, and it's actually from an ancient Jewish prayer. It translates as this. I believe in the sun even when it isn't shining. I believe in love even when I am alone. I believe in God even when he is silent. I find that so powerful that someone in a situation where they are fearing for their life can write something like that, fueled by the memory of what God has done in the past. How do we believe in the sun even when it's hidden by clouds? Well, we remind ourselves what it feels like. The many, 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 many times we have seen the sun and basked in its warmth. And the memory of that reminds us, it fuels our hope. How do we trust in God when he seems absent, when he seems quiet? We bring to mind the many ways he has shown us his faithfulness again and again and again. And that fuels our hope. We learn to trust God by sowing our tears through patiently, repeatedly reflecting on the goodness of God and allowing that to create a sense of hope in our hearts. But sowing is only half the story. It's only half the psalm. And actually, what the psalmist promises is that when we increasingly learn to sow our tears in these ways and many more, God does something in response. We get to sow our tears that we may reap joy. This is what it says. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. There's a real confidence to that. It feels a bit strange at first, the level of confidence there. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves um, uh, with them. In the psalmist's mind, there doesn't seem to be any question about it. You sow with tears, you will reap with joy. I mean, from my limited experience of gardening, uh, that's not always a guarantee, particularly if you're as hopeless at it as I am. Uh, we have in our estate, like a communal garden area, and um, Helen and I managed to get a plot in this area, and we decided to grow vegetables. And I, I, I had this dream of it being the good life. I love to cook. I love to create my own sort of food. I love this sort of thing. I had this dream. I thought, I'm going to be amazing at this. I'm passionate about it. It's going to be wonderful. And so last summer, we tried to grow celeriac. I don't know why I started with celeriac, other than the fact I like celeriac. So we started to grow this stuff, and we buried it in the ground. And I tended to it, and I watered it, did all the things you're meant to do. And the leaves, like there were huge leaves everywhere. I was like, this is amazing, like celeriac harvest. We'll feed South London with celeriac, I thought, um, uh, six of them. And <laughs> these just huge leaves. And actually above the soil, you can see like the dome at the top of the celeriac. And you see the dome and you think, well, if that dome carries, that's going to be a pretty big celeriac. And I was excited. 
And I had this idea of what I wanted to cook. And I'd actually, I'd planned the meal and I'd gone out, I'd got all the ingredients for what I was going to cook with this abundant harvest of celeriac. The only thing I needed to do was to go and get the celeriac. So I went down the stairs, went to the garden area, feeling proud of this celeriac. I pulled it up and there was literally nothing there. It was just like leaves, tiny dome and nothing. And I felt like, you know, when they talk about icebergs and you see the tip and there's this massive thing underneath, I was expecting like enormous celeriac. There was literally nothing there. I was like, that's fine. We got six them we had no celeriac at all so when I hear those who sow with tears will reap I'm like not if you sow like I sowed I'm pretty hopeless at that if I were writing this psalm I'd say those who sow with tears stand a decent chance of perhaps reaping a portion of a harvest of celeriac of joy or whatever uh, celeriac of joy I'm pretty sure that's a phrase that's never been used uh, before there we go google it see um I I don't have the same confidence that the psalmist seems to have here. How can he say those who sow with tears will reap with joy? What is the basis for that kind of hope? I think it's the character of God. And in a way that the psalmist could not possibly know, but we can know with fullness of hindsight, it is the character of God as expressed through the person of Jesus Christ. I said earlier that this was one of the songs of ascent that people would sing year after year after year as they ascended the mountain longing, God, would this be the year that you answer our prayers and bring us freedom and restoration? And then one year, in amongst the thousands of worshippers ascending that mountain, there was one Jewish peasant carpenter making the exact same journey with the exact same hopes and questions and dreams, singing the exact same song. You can read about it in the Gospels. John 12 in particular, he is traveling up the mountain, singing the Psalms of Ascent, singing these very words. When Jesus gets to the top, he says these phrases, which sound so cryptic, so strange, but in the light of the song he has just sung, makes so much sense. John 12, Jesus says this, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. He's talking about his own death, which was to happen just a couple of days later, where at the cross, Jesus would sow not only his tears, but his life for us. And like that seed, Jesus' body went through a a death, a falling to the ground, a burial, a waiting in darkness, and then a resurrection to life. And so the whole act of sowing our tears and reaping a harvest is not just positive thinking. It is modeled on the very life and death of Jesus himself. The ground for Christian hope is not just positive thinking. It is the death and resurrection of Jesus. The good news that through him sowing his life for us and being raised again from the dead, there is hope, a sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the dead. Through the death of this one seed, one man, many seeds will be raised up, Jesus said. Paul describes Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits 
which is just such a powerful phrase. Because when you bring in the first fruit, you don't just think, well, that's it. That's the whole harvest. You bring in the first fruit and you know there is way more to come. The first fruit guarantees the harvest. And Paul said that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits guaranteeing the harvest that is to come. When he returns, he will make all things new. And as his body was made new, so this world will be made new. And there will be resurrection bodies, eternal life, and the fullness of joy for all who trust in him. That is the basis of the Christian hope. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus. So do you have that hope? Do you have that hope? That because he sowed his life for us and was raised again, so too when we sow our tears, we can find the guarantee of joy and hope in the promise of resurrection. That's what Jesus offers. That's what the psalmist got a glimpse of. It's what we can now know in full. I sow tears now, but because Jesus is risen, he is the first fruits, he is coming again, we will reap a harvest of joy. In fact, it's even more profound than that. Because in the psalm, the psalmist writes about the difficult times. And in verse 3, he says this, The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Present tense. He doesn't say we have been filled with joy and we hope to be filled with joy again. He says, though we are now in a period that's best characterized as like the wilderness, full of the sowing of tears, we are filled with joy. There is a quality of peace that Jesus gives that cannot be found anywhere else. It doesn't feel like punching the air with joy. At least it rarely does. But it feels like a peace and a confidence that does not depend on our circumstances. It doesn't mean that we will not experience pain or that we will not shed tears but that when we do shed tears, God can give us his peace in the midst of our mourning through his Holy Spirit. We sow tears, we reap joy. And what's more, harvest is not just something for us, something that benefits us individually. When you bring in a harvest, you bring more than you need to fill yourself, to feed yourself. The harvest feeds families. It fills communities It feeds towns, it feeds cities. When we sow our tears in the soil of the gospel, it brings about a harvest that not only sustains us, but brings hope to many in the communities around us. I honestly believe that the events of the past few weeks will change this community. They have already. And I honestly believe that as difficult as it is to imagine it right now, there will be a harvest for this community and for this part of London bigger than anything we could ever dream of. Because people have seen and will continue to see this community as a living embodiment of the gospel. The psalmist looks back to earlier days when God blessed his people. It says, it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Nations that didn't know God looked at this community experiencing the blessings of God and said, I believe in their God now, I want to know him. That's my prayer for us. That's my prayer, that people would look at this community 
And the kind of quality of love that is on display here, modeled in the gospel, and say, see how these people love one another. See how they worship. See how they pray. See how they provide for one another. See how they cling on to hope, even in the midst of deep suffering. I want to know their God. I want to know the God that sustains that community. That's my prayer for us. What do we do with our tears when we face difficult times? We don't deny them. We don't ignore them. But rather we sow them through prayer, through worship, through community, through patient trust, bringing our tears to our Savior who sowed his own life for us and rose again from the dead. And as we sow our tears in the soil of the gospel, we will in due course reap a harvest of joy for ourselves, our community, and for many who do not yet know God. That's my prayer for us. And I'd love us to worship this morning and to pray. And it may be that we'll have chances to pray for one another or to be prayed for You may want to pray in your own hearts, but why don't I invite us to stand? I would love to pray for us. Maybe the band can come back up and then we'll worship together. And I should say that if you are here today and you don't know Jesus, you may have a load of questions about him, about what he taught, about his life and his death and his resurrection. And we would love to help you explore some of those questions. It may be that actually you're here today and you've thought, I've, I've explored these questions, but I know I don't have that hope. I know I've never chosen to follow Jesus. And if you would like to today, then I'd love to talk with you, pray with you at the end. We'll have a prayer team who will also be happy to pray with you and introduce you to Jesus. But otherwise, let's pray. And you might find it helpful to close your eyes, to hold out your hands as a sign of your openness to God. And I'll lead us. Faithful Father God, Holy Spirit, our comforter, would you rest on us now? Jesus, you said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I want to pray that you would pour out your comfort this day and in the coming weeks and months. I ask that all who weep would learn to sow their tears in the soil of the gospel through prayer, worship, community, and patient trust in you. And I want to ask for an abundant harvest of joy, a joy that the world cannot take away. I ask for confidence, hope, and deep-rooted trust. I want to ask that this community would increasingly be characterized as a place of love, I want to ask that the way in which people lay down their lives for one another would be a powerful witness of the way that you laid down your life for us. I want to ask that many would come to know you and find eternal life through you because of the quality of community and sacrificial love on show in this community. I want to ask that we may experience an abundant harvest of joy. We love you. We're so grateful that you love us. We commit ourselves to you. We ask, Spirit of God, strengthen us as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.